I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is New Jersey poet Laura Boss, the first place winner of the Poetry Society of America's Gordon Barber Poetry Contest. She's the founding editor of Lips, a literary magazine with a much longer history than most literary magazines manage to accomplish. She has also published many poets whose names you would recognize. She'll be reading from her latest book, just out from NYQ, New York Quarterly Books, The Best Lover. Then we'll take a look at the prose poem. I'll be reading a few excerpts from some poems in the book by the same title, The Prose Poem, an International Anthology, edited by Michael Benedict. Stick around. It's going to be a good one. I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is New Jersey poet Laura Boss. She's the founder and editor of the literary magazine Lips. She's received numerous awards for her poetry, and we're going to be talking with her and hearing poems from her newest book from New York Quarterly Books called The Best Lover. Here's what our friend Maria Maziotti Gillen has to say about Laura. Using dry humor. She creates a unique and original voice to explore contemporary life and love. And I think Maria's right. So, Laura, I'm so glad you're here for Poetry Spoken Here. I'm glad to be here, Troy. You want to uh, start right off with the title poem, The Best Lover? The Best Lover. I tell every man I'm with that he's the best lover I've ever had. He always believes me. I feel if he asks me, then that's the only answer he wants to hear. And somehow at that moment after lovemaking, I almost believe it myself. Maybe it's not so different from when someone asks you, which of your books do you think is your best? And you almost always answer, it's my most recent. <laughs> How did you decide to make that the title of the book? Actually, it wasn't. My first title that I had been using as a working title for five years was Flight, Flight from Happiness, or Flight Toward Happiness, Flight Away from mm. Sadness. But then Sherman Alexi came out with a book called Flight. So obviously I couldn't use, and I'm sure he never heard me talk about my title. So obviously I could not, I could not use his title. So then I decided the best lover might be a provocative title. And, uh, and I had a poem called "If a Man Asks Me," and I had changed it to "The Best Lover," and I, that's and that's how it, and, and that was a catalyst for it. A provocative title. Something something about you as as the editor of Lips. I'm gonna get this in here, you know. As the editor of Lips, you're I consider you uh, fearless. I just recently recommended a guy who was wondering where he could send a particular poem, and I suggested he send it to you because in the past I've sent you poems that I had the feeling other editors would be afraid of or would run away from, and you've liked some of those. And I don't know if, I don't know what the characteristic is, if it's something that maybe might offend somebody or I don't know what, but. I think what I like, I, I, I take a great many risks in my own work and I'm always um, appreciative of a poet, a good poet who like you, who takes those risks as well. And also I don't have 
a, a university or I edit my own magazine. I've been doing it since I founded it in 1980 and the first issue 81. I have no university support. So I can use perhaps uh, more a language and ideas that um, might be objective, uh, uh, object, objectable to, to, yeah. um, to a magazine if they had a board of directors overlooking them, you know, in terms of censorship, etc. It's always good to have a poem in lips because you're always in great company. Good people like Robert Bly, Allen Ginsberg, Gregory Corso, Marco right. Benedict, Maria Masiati Gillen, and so many, I mean, um, so many uh, poets uh, that uh, you know, and uh, Ishmael Reed. Um, it goes on and on because after 36 years, going to 37 years, obviously there are a lot of well-known poets, but I've also taken great pride in publishing a poet's first poem having their first yeah. uh, poem uh, published in lips. So that's uh, that's how it is. Any Anybody listening, yes. If you if you look for lips, it's an annual, and it's one of those, it's a literary magazine, but it's like you're getting a book. It's, right. We used to do three issues a year, but it was just financially too difficult. So now we do two issues once a year joined together. So it would be issue, for example, coming up 48, 49. So right. honestly, and it's a much thicker issue than it had been originally. Check out lips and submit some good poems. <laughs> well, um, what what else would you like to read right now? Well, I can read um, a poem called um, I my book also I could read instead of Temple, which actually. I don't think is maybe one of my most popular poems, but I'll, I'll read it anyway. Instead of temple, I go to poetry readings instead of temple. I sit there and often as I listen to the featured reader, as if transported, as if in a trance or meditative state, I forget all the worries I carried in with me. And similar to temple, I transcend my daily petty or not so petty concerns and am connected on an emotional level to those breathing in the hypnotizing words of the reader. Of course, there are those times I feel no connection to the words of the poet reading, maybe not so different from listening to a boring sermon, but still go deep inside my own unconscious, pull out my notebook, pull out a big pen, and watch as my fingers are moving the pen over the paper, as if my mind follows the pen's rapid flow. And that is a part of writing poetry as holy as most parishioners feel, sitting in temple, listening to a sermon, or even perhaps praying. So that's that one. Okay. You said you don't, you don't think it's one of your best poems, but I, true confession, I requested it because yes. <laughs> I, I have had that exact, just about exact same thought that there's poetry in my life every day. And when you read, and I'm thinking of just being me in a book reading poetry, not going to reading so much. But when reading a poem, you, you're thinking about your life. You're thinking about values. You're thinking about society. Uh, well, we, what we do people think about in church? Well, they think about God, I'll admit. So right. they, they've got we're God the going for them. But. We're on the same page, definitely. At any rate, so this book, um, I have, um, I think I'm going to read the internet dating because I think it's, it's my voice is, okay. is, is there. What I don't believe. What I don't believe is that at my age on J-Date, that men that send me an email will be good looking. 
The most you can say is, I can see they were once good looking, that most of the photos are from 10 years ago, and when you finally meet a man for coffee or brunch, or possibly if they have a more generous friend for dinner, they will not look like their photos, but more wrinkled, more bald, grayer. Most of the men five foot six inches will be more like five foot three inches and only contact women five foot two inches and under. Most of the women will lie about their weight. 140 states, 124. How old is your photo? My new date asks. I don't want to tell him it's 25 years old. The middle one is more recent, I say. I don't say it's a decade old and was flattering even then. During dinner, a man will leave for the men's room often, at least twice. Almost all the men have prostate issues, although they don't mention it. My date asks me, do you get a mammogram every year? He has his own fears about a woman's health. Do you have any health problems, I'm asked? No, I say, and often don't mention a health scare I had 12 years ago, though sometimes I do. On the first day date at coffee, how much do you weigh, my date asks me. How much money do you have, he asks. How long has it been since you've had sex? Why did you get divorced, he continues. Who left whom? How much do you weigh? Poem of the times. <laughs> you know, my poems are from a woman's point of view, and all poems are from the point of view, obviously, whoever uh, wrote them. But, uh, you know, a man would write it differently, and it, it probably would be, uh, uh, it, it, it could be uh, just as risky, but it would be a different point of view. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, oh, that's good. Yeah, I'm sure people appreciate it. Do we do we have time for me to read Living Together for Gregory Corso or if not? Sure. Living Together for Gregory Corso. I lived with Gregory for a year, or rather he lived with me. And though it was only a year, it seemed like 20. At night on my brown velvet sofa, he would write in his Chinese red silk embroidered covered journal with his brown ink Montblanc pen that he had asked me to buy for him and to get one for myself, though I never did. The TV would be on and in memory always turned to a baseball game. In the mornings, we would make the run to Christie Street for him to pick up what he needed to survive the day. At this point, I was on a hopeless mission to get him to stop, to get rid of his years of bad habits. I was wearing my invisible Wonder Woman cape, but I was never successful like Wonder Woman. Sometimes we would go out to Maxwell's Plum, but he could never sit for more than half the lunch. He took me to see the movie Napoleon, but we only stayed for half. It was incredibly long. He stayed in my apartment and painted a self-portrait of himself. He kept changing the face, even once made himself black. He had the skyline of San Francisco behind him. He painted a portrait of his friend Kerouac. He painted a portrait of me and my eyes turquoise, though they are green, and even made the sky turquoise. He made me look like a bitch, but the colors were beautiful. We went to San Francisco to find an apartment, but came back to New York when we were called that Ted Berrigan had died. There was never, I realized, a chance that we would make it. We were like a fragile, fragrant, homemade candle, its slight flickering wick, just waiting for the oncoming tsunami wave to blow it out. I'm sure that was a really interesting year. Challenging. 
Yeah, very that's, generative. That's probably the best word. Yeah, maybe a generous word even. So you really had known being in New York, you've you've known lots of uh, poets who are pretty much household names, you might say. I think so. I lived with a poet, uh, or I didn't live continually with him. I kept my own place, but I was the companion of the poet Michael Benedict uh, for 23 years. And I always thought he was a wonderful poet. In fact, I edited a book with uh, John Gallagher, Time is a Toy, the Selected Works of Michael Benedict, that came out from the University of Akron in 2014, uh, way after Michael died, because I felt that he, even though he won, you know, a Guggenheim and an NEA, and and he he yeah. he was he once edited uh, the poetry at the uh, poetry um, uh, at the Paris Review. I didn't want his work to be forgotten, and uh, his family had thrown uh, were going to dump everything in the dumpster. So I tried to save his work, and um, and 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 I did, and I managed, if, uh, though I didn't get really material things. Uh, uh, he had no will, unfortunately. Uh, I did manage to be executor of his work. And so I've always been pushing, you know, for people hoping that he will be rediscovered again. I'm looking at my bookshelf here and I believe I see the prose poem. Did he oh, edit that? Yes, he did a landmark, uh, the ah. prose poems, and he had five books from Wesleyan or or four from Wesleyan and one from U of Pitt. And he, he did major anthologies, a poem, prose poem, the poetry of surrealism. Really, right. you know, he did a lifetime of work in a very short time, I think. I remember the prose poem. I, I don't think people were particularly talking about prose poems back when that anthology came out. No, he really was an innovator, I think, of uh, much of contemporary prose poetry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's really, really did some interesting work. Michael Benedict, folks, another good person to look up if you don't know his work. Right. Uh, those, the beautiful thing about the internet is these books you can usually find somewhere. It's it's true. It's 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 true. And um, um, I think Bob Holman called him the uh, something like I don't know the exact the king of the internet because Michael was so was one of the first to get on and put his oh. work on. Uh, he was really unlike me. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. Tech really he taught himself he taught himself it too way way before it was really used very much. Wow. I always attributed oh. to the fact that his father was an engineer, but that's really probably not true. He just was a very brilliant man. So yeah. <laughs> And determined, I suppose, because I'm like <laughs> you, I haven't gotten very far. And I think it's uh, everybody well, else isn't that much smarter. We're just, they're more determined. I think they, probably, and I really don't, I think they probably enjoyed the, the tech aspect more too. Well, I enjoyed yeah. actually the writing. Definitely. So, nothing gets, that, yeah. that is the best part for me. It's not yeah. even the publishing or the readings. It's It's really, if I write something that I like, then I'm very happy. Yeah. And you also, um, you do a lot of poetry in the schools, correct? I do. In fact, um, mm -hmm. I'm a Dodge, Geraldine R. Dodge poet in the school. And um, I do, uh, a, a po I've always done, uh, been an author in the classroom in Patterson. And I do a lot of uh, workshops for adults, too. I'm doing a mature workshop at a college uh, from Passaic, from the Poetry Center in Patterson. I'm doing that in Wante this, this, this October. And I'm going to be doing something, a, a mini uh, uh, a celebration of the 30th anniversary of the Dodge Poetry Festival. Uh, 
and October 21st at uh, Warren County Community College, along with some other really fine writers. Um, I'm not saying I'm a fine writer, but I'm with some fine writers. And um, I'm going to be doing uh, you're one of the my usual readers, Montclair yeah. Adult School. I've been doing workshops, wow. private workshops for 20 years. And some of those poets have followed me for 15 or 20 years. So it's really very nice. So I'm, wow. I'm busy. I'm busy, but... Um, I, it's it's not as financially it's not a great field to be a freelance poet. It really is not compared to being in, in real estate. But I like it more than real estate. <laughs> Absolutely, on all points, yes. And it's always admirable when somebody is making it as a poet, not in a full time teaching position somewhere. Right. You know, right. it's just it's a very admirable and, and very um, almost astonishing know, Charlie, thing to accomplish. I don't know if I had known it was going to be this difficult. I think probably mm. I would have been better off uh, from graduate school go, going on to finish mm. to get my doctorate and getting a place at a university. But 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 yeah. by that time, I think that uh, I, I it was really too late for me to start. I yeah. I, I made one application and didn't get it. Uh, they cut out the uh, yeah. that particular uh, position and. Uh, but you know, there still is some ageism in in our system, though supposedly there's not. And you know, um, they like to take a young person very often and have them go all the way through it. Unless you're a Lucille Clifton and you have just like you're such a wonderful poet and you have you've won all these major major prizes, major yeah. prizes that that you know they will place you in the schools. But it's not really the it doesn't seem to be a the way, very hard it's to be a freelance world. poet. You're a freelance poet. And so now that long poem, 9-11, um, 45. Thank you. I think you know my book better than I do. So here it is. No, I, I, I know the poems I wanted to request because this, <laughs> this poem, it does, does what poetry can, should, does do. It, it provides this specific, personal, detailed account and I think and, it's, it makes it very interesting as a, as a historic record, really. Thank you, Charlie. And I really want to say about this poem that I never had it published before it went into my book 16 years later because I didn't want to make, have a, something that was profitable to me from something that was such a tragedy, just such an absolute tragedy for so many. I felt there was something um, something yeah. wrong with doing that but now so many years have gone uh, by I'm, I'm it doesn't ease the tragic the tragedy of it but i think that um so much has been written about it i i don't have the same feelings about that really 9 11 from my apartment window i see the second tower burst into a giant flame ball something's wrong two towers don't get hit within 10 minutes I watch the black smoke spreading over lower Manhattan. I think of so many of my neighbors lined up at 710 this morning for the bus to Wall Street from this New Jersey apartment building perched on the cliffs of the Palisades above the Hudson River, where the view of the New York skyline is so astonishingly beautiful that I don't have shades on my windows. The phones are not working. I take the elevator down to the bottom gym level of my building remembering grade school air raid drills and going to the basement level. The television is on and the confusion of the women in the gym echoes my own. I decide to walk to my doctor's appointment since the idea of not showing up and not calling to say I wasn't coming seems unthinkable. 
Although everything at this moment seems unthinkable, I decide to walk the two miles since it's, since it's impossible to call for a taxi. My street is closed to cars by police cars blocking the road. I'm suddenly afraid to walk on this major thoroughfare, thinking something might happen here. This doctor has been seeing me for post-traumatic stress from a car accident. Today, he only sees me for a few minutes, though he takes notes, and then we both go out to his waiting room to look at the TV. Things are worse, if that's possible. The Pentagon has been hit by a plane, and now the World Trade Towers have collapsed. Nothing seems real. I walk the two miles back to my apartment, seeing the black smoke filling the sky. I pass the Anne Klein Public School around 11.30. Mothers are running toward the school. Some mothers already have their children and are pulling them away from the school and obviously home. I'm surprised to see so many neighborhood fathers are also there at the school, also taking their children home. I ask the school guard if there is school going on. She answers, yes. I hear a student tell her friend, one of the girls in my class's mother works in the first tower and her mother's probably dead. I run the last two blocks to my high rise. Hundreds of people line my street. The boulevard is still closed to cars. I look across the river, the World Trade Towers are gone. I can't catch my breath, but keep running into my lobby and take the elevator to my tiny apartment on the 26th floor. I look out the window and see the void where those steel cathedrals rose. I keep thinking of the thousands of fathers, mothers, daughters, and sons under those collapsed towers. My old college roommate calls. The phones are back. She's crying. Where were you? Are you all right? My older son calls from Washington to tell me he and his wife, who works for the federal government, are okay and checking to make sure I'm fine. My boyfriend doesn't answer his phone, but I know he never goes downtown and is working on a project in his Upper West Side apartment. He doesn't call me and I'm amazed with all that's going on. This still bothers me. The smoke and smoldering fire are still visible, though five days have passed. It will be two more days before the principal of my six-year-old granddaughter school will call to say Amanda Rose's first grade deskmate's father is missing. Through my window, I see the Empire State Building is dark, where usually it's ablaze each night in red and green or lavender or blue and white or colors to celebrate a holiday or team or cause. But tonight it is dark, something I don't ever remember seeing. It is as, as if the now tallest building in the city is in mourning for New York for the stockbrokers, file clerks, paralegals, waiters, and busboys from windows on the world, those cleaners with dust mops, and all the policemen and policewomen, EMS workers, and over 200 firemen who now lie in the dust, still rising like a nuclear blast over the city. Several nights later, I look out my window and see the blaze of red, white, and blue lights from the top of the Empire State Building. And I think that just possibly our trust, our spirit, though also shut off for a while, will return. Yeah, I think it's just really, it does what poetry should do. One of the things poetry should do, it documents an important event. Thank you, Charlie. And from your perspective too, which makes it unique, you know. How far are you from down there? 
Well, when I was living there, I, I just got married yeah. four years ago uh, mm -hmm. and uh, moved uh, more towards suburbia, toward Morristown. But I was I was perched on the Hudson River. I could see the Empire State Building. I could see the World Trade Towers. I saw what was happening. Mm -hmm. I could see the Veronzano Bridge and the Statue of Liberty. I could I yeah. mean, I I had the whole was a spectacular view, which is why I, I had virtually a closet of an apartment, but the view went on forever. I loved it so much. And uh, but that was a very, very dark day. Very dark yeah. day. Wow. Well, I'm glad you wrote that poem and and Thank enough you. time passed that it seems it's appropriate. It's, it's good now to have it be published and people will be able so. to read you. it and hear it, you know. And I'm Thank glad you. we have we now have an audio archive for that. So Thank you so much, Charlie. I appreciate it. Well, we're, we've about used up our time here. I've just enjoyed talking with you so much Beautiful. and um uh you have uh, you're definitely a renaissance man. There are several uh, you, you're a wonderful poet and obviously a wonderful interviewer. And um, I, I'm very grateful to have this opportunity. Thank you so much. And I know you, I've just been starting to listen to all, all, all your podcasts. And I, th I think you're making a true co contribution to poetry for not just poets, but for those interested in poetry. Why, thank you. And that's our interview with Laura Boss. Um, you're listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter. This is Poetry Spoken Here. We've been visiting with New Jersey poet Laura Boss. And Laura's mention of her longtime relationship with Michael Benedict reminded me of some of the excellent work he had done over the years. It particularly got me thinking about the prose poem. So I went to my bookshelf and pulled out my copy of an anthology he put together called The Prose Poem, An International Anthology. I'll warn you, this was published some time ago, and it is not easy to track down. If you like something that you hear and you want to find a copy, and you do, snap it up. And when this book was published, the term flash fiction was not yet in common use. And so when you hear the couple of examples I'm going to read, I think you'll no doubt think about flash fiction, poetry, prose, the prose poem, and how one may legitimately distinguish among these forms. Let's start with Michael Benedict's definition of the prose poem. It's a genre of poetry, self-consciously written in prose, and characterized by the intense use of virtually all the devices of poetry, which includes the intense use of devices of verse, of course, with the exception of the line break. I think examples are probably the best way to get a picture of what a form is, something like this anyway. And uh, I'm going to read you a few. The first one is by Max Jacob, originally in French, translated by John Ashbery. And it's called The Bigger Woman of Naples. When I lived in Naples, there was always a bigger woman at the gate of my palace, to whom I would toss some coins before climbing into my carriage. One day, surprised at never being thanked, I looked at the beggar woman. Now, as I looked at her, I saw that what I had taken for a beggar woman was a wooden case painted green, which contained some red earth and a few 
half-rotten bananas. That's The Bigger Woman of Naples by Max Jacob. Here's another by Max Jacob. This is called Christian Families. A great event just took place at the congregational school run by the monks of the Order of X. A most remarkable miracle. A monk slapped a boy who was supposed to be making fun of him. The young fellow called on Christ as witness that he wasn't making fun of the monk, and the white marble Christ held out his arms and blessed the young victim and then slapped his accuser. The entire class fell to its knees. Religious vocations were adopted. And what do you think happened then? The families were furious. They began withdrawing their children from the school, not because teachers were beating students, but because the education was, quote, a little too mystical. That's by Max Jacob, and it was uh, translated by Michael Benedict. He translated quite a a few of the uh, prose poems in the collection. Uh, One more, it's a little longer, I'll read a, a, a section of it. This is called The Dog by Attila Joseph. He's in uh, Middle, Middle Europe, it says here. And uh, John Batke is the translator. The dog. He was shaggy, sloppy, wet, his coat a yellow flame. From his sad haunches, slim with hunger and seedy with desire, the cool night breeze streamed a long way. He ran and begged, crowded, Sighing churches lived in his eyes as he scavenged for scraps and breadcrumbs. I pitied him as if that poor dog had crawled out of myself. I saw in him all that is shabby in this world. You really catch the uh, poetic quality when you get something like sighing churches lived in his eyes. I love that. At any rate, those are a few examples of uh, prose poems. I'm Charlie Rossiter. This has been Poetry Spoken Here. Be with us again next time to let poetry speak to you. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Munley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetry spoken here. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetry spoken here. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com. 